Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, artist Theodore Morris specializes in oil paintings of Florida's indigenous peoples. That really gets you excited when you, when you pick up a shell or a broken piece of pottery and it's been there for thousands of years. Or You know, that's pretty neat. The you know, last person who touched it was so old and so long ago. We'll meet legendary alligator hunter Tommy Gore Jr. Always an alligator in somebody's yard or in their swimming pool or in their lake, eating their dog. F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda vacationed in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That Seminole Indian leader Billy Bowlegs III recorded in 1954 performing the alligator dance. When the Seminoles first appeared in Florida in the mid-1700s, they occupied land where other Native Americans had lived for thousands of years. Tribes such as the Calusa, the Timaqua, and the Apalachee lived in Florida long before European contact in the 1500s. While the archaeological record contains exciting tools, pottery, and other artifacts, the visual record of pre-European contact peoples in Florida is very limited. Since 1992, artist Theodore Morris has dedicated his career to creating realistic oil paintings depicting Florida's prehistoric and indigenous populations. Well, actually, uh, about 1988, I started getting into Florida history and went on archaeological digs, and that certainly got involved with the archaeology community. And then uh, an archaeologist friend and I decided to do a poster, a fundraising poster, for the Florida Anthropological Society. So uh, we had, you know, all the things we wanted to put in it, so I went to the library to get some reference material and uh, some visual reference material, and there was none. There were some kind of weird, far-out things that artists had drawn over the years, but... So, uh, so I went back with the, with the archaeologist, and we kind of piece together what, what they would look like. And so I got the poster done. It was just a line drawing. And, and then one day I walked by the poster. The poster, the big figure, was a Birdman dancer from Tallahassee, from Fort, uh, Lake Jackson up there. And that was on a copper breastplate carved. So anyway, one day I walked by the poster, and I said, well, I wonder what this looked like in paints. Because I've always, I've been a commercial artist, and then I would quit and not paint for a while, and then run out of money and go back and do commercial art, back and forth. So I knew how to paint, and uh, so I went, well, I wonder what this looks like in color. It's just, it just it kind of magical happened, it like really made a connection, because I love history, and I love art, and it just kind of all melded together. And uh, so I said, well, 
you know, why not? I guess I'll just continue doing these and uh, see what happens. And so I'm still doing them. Before Ted Morris started painting Florida's indigenous peoples, images of prehistoric and early tribes were either non-existent, notoriously inaccurate, or so fanciful that they had no real educational value. Morris does extensive research to ensure that his images are realistic, going as far as participating in archaeological excavations. Well, that was the number one priority, to make them as historically accurate as possible. When I first got in, into it, of course, I didn't know that much about them either, because they've been pretty, well, kind of, you know, underground, you might say, in Florida. Nobody knows too much about them. They know about Seminoles, but not the early tribes. So it's a learning process for me. So. When I did a painting, I would either take the sketch or the final painting or, and uh, set a picture to an archaeologist. Our only archaeologists in Florida have like certain fields, certain tribes that they work in, certain areas. And so like if I was doing Appalachia, I would send it to the, uh, uh, the, the archaeologist in Tallahassee. And uh, they would say, oh, well, this, this artifact is incorrect. This was traded in from somewhere else or this was the wrong time period or like that. So I'd go back and forth and then after a number of years, I finally got the hang of it. And of course, all this time I was doing research and collecting all kinds of uh, reference material. So that was, so far I think I've, I've pretty well accomplished what I set out to do as far as accuracy goes. Ted Morris has displayed his oil paintings of native Floridians in one-man shows at galleries and museums throughout the state. His work has appeared in many publications, including the book Florida Lost Tribes, published by the University Press of Florida. Morris has found a real hunger for his artistic renderings of Florida's early inhabitants. From the feedback I get from the archaeologists, they love to have put all their stuff in context. In other words, they'll find a bit here and a piece there and another piece over there, and to see them actually on the on the Indian, you know, that it kind of makes it uh, a little more fulfilling for them in a, in a way. So they they really like the idea. Archaeologists and anthropologists are scientists, yet they seem to have embraced Ted Morris's artistic efforts to depict Florida's indigenous peoples. Dr. Rachel Wentz is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region. Well, I think uh, Ted's artwork gives us a glimpse into the past that we don't have records of. So through his research and his meticulous attention to detail, we're able to see what Florida's early natives might have looked like, some of their activities in life, really get a kind of a visual idea of what their life was like prior to contact. And we have, uh, of course, we have no records of that. All we have are the Lemoyne engravings from the time of contact. Before then, you know, we, all we know is what we can discover through the archaeological records. So Ted kind of links us to a visual past. The Florida Anthropological Society focused on Ted Morris's work for the television documentary Shadows and Reflections, The Search for Florida's Lost People. Morris was filmed completing a work that ended up being used as the cover of the book Ancient Miamians. Rachel Wenz screened the documentary as part of FPAN's Dirt on Film series. Wentz believes that Ted Morris's art has educational value. They are because they're not works of fantasy. He takes a lot of um, care in the background research he does. In fact, the documentary we're showing tonight, Shadows and Reflections, kind of follows his path, his journey of documenting Florida's ancient people, the research that goes into making these as lifelike and realistic as possible. As a trained archaeologist, Dr. Wentz appreciates Ted Morris's efforts to be as realistic as possible when depicting Florida's indigenous peoples. I do, and I think that 
they allow us to portray when we give lectures and presentations it's wonderful to have his work to be able to show what these people look like the, the body ornamentations they may have performed the clothing they may have worn the tools they used in life that we know about through the archaeological records so it, it brings it to life and it brings it to life in a very um, careful and researched way it's not they're not works of fantasy and that's what makes them excellent teaching tools Ted Morris's oil paintings range from lifelike portraits to scenes of everyday Native American life that no longer exist. He says it's difficult to identify his favorite pieces. Well, it's usually the last one I paint, but uh, then that goes away after a while. And I do have some like Chief Otina and um, Everglades Hunts. And the one I'm working on now, I'm doing a, a, a woman in uh, Ocali, Ocali tribe, Ocala. And she's in the with scrub jays, and one's flying over her head, and one is on her perch, on her shoulder. So that's looking really good. So that's my favorite one right now. Florida's indigenous people have been the focus of Ted Morris's paintings for the better part of two decades. His most recent work is branching slightly beyond Florida's borders. Uh, yes, I'm starting to do a few of the uh, <laughs> the lost tribes of the Caribbean now, the Tayano and. Uh, so that's pretty interesting, doing a little research and reading the Columbus' journals. and uh, So I may do a series of those, because that's another thing that people in Florida especially don't know much, but there's contact between our Indians and those Indians down there, so you know it might be an interesting exhibit. The art of Ted Morris depicting Native Americans in Florida can be seen at the Mariner's Manor Gallery on St. George Street in St. Augustine and in the book Florida Lost Tribes, published by the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. To find out about all of the exciting and interesting projects and programs of the Florida Historical Society, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, take a moment to become a member of the Society so you can receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much, much more. Just hit the Join Now button at myfloridahistory.org.
as more and more Florida swamps became subdivisions in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the state's licensed alligator trapper, Tommy Gore Jr., had plenty of work. Janie Gould has more. For 20 years, Tommy Gore Jr. and his wife Sue captured nuisance gators, sometimes as many as 40 in a single week. Always an alligator in somebody's yard or in their swimming pool or in their lake, eating their dog. During those days, we were not allowed to kill the alligator. Eventually, the state would require us to kill the gator and process the meat in the hide, but we could not do that until we brought the alligator home. I'm going to ask you how you catch an alligator, and I'm sure the answer could be very carefully. Very carefully, yes. That's the first thing. My wife probably caught the largest alligator that a woman has caught in South Florida. I got a call from a lady who was in hysterics. She says, Mr. Gore, Mr. Gore, come quick. Your wife needs you. So I get to the lady's house in Port St. Lucie, and I see a five-foot alligator tied across the tailgate of my pickup truck. And I looked over, and I said, now what in the world did my wife need with me with a five-foot alligator? She handles that every day by herself. She says, no, Mr. Gore, the one down tied to the tree. And I looked, and there's a 12-foot, 9-inch alligator that my wife got out of the water by herself, had him wrapped up and tied, had his mouth taped shut, and couldn't do anything with him from that point on. The alligator weighed eight or 900 pounds. She got him out of the St. Lucie River? She got him out of the St. Lucie River. She says, oh, I caught him on a bait, threw the bait to him. He swallowed the bait down. I pulled him up. When he got him up, she says, I made my helper hold the line. I lassoed him around the neck and tied the other end of the rope to the truck, backed the truck down, pulled him up on the bank, and then made my helper hold the line tight. He said, first, I threw my helper's shirt over his eyes so he wouldn't see me when I jumped. She said she jumped on top of the alligator, held his mouth shut, and the helper taped his mouth shut. Oh, my gosh. Just like it was a normal routine. There was a time not that long ago when alligators were almost extinct in Florida. Well, when we were growing up running the marshes in western St. Lucie County, we didn't see very many alligators. Like you say, they were on the extinct list. And then they went on the endangered list. And then they rebound to overpopulation, which probably wasn't really overpopulation on the alligator side. It was overpopulation on the people draining the wetlands and the alligator having no place to go. How many gators do you suppose you've trapped, you and your wife? In the thousands. Thousands? Thousands. We've caught as many as 40 in one week. Probably in the month of May when they are moving? May, June, July, and then again in August when they began to hatch out. There was always a problem with children thinking that uh, exposed eggs would be neat to approach, not realizing what the mama alligator was going to do. That's the only time that I ever considered an alligator really dangerous. Like a mama bear. She's going to protect those eggs. I've had to climb many a six-foot-tall chain-link fence, not realizing that mama was guarding that nest. She approaches you very rapidly. She's not happy. Not happy at all. Have you ever gotten bitten, scratched, whipped by a gator tail? I've been bitten once by a little baby alligator. Even that size is extremely painful when he bites you. He won't release his grip. So what did you do? I just kept tapping him on the head, and after a while, he's going to try to bite you. Get your hand out while you can, but on a larger alligator, forget it. An alligator goes into a violent spin when he bites something. Rolls. If he caught you by the hand, you better hope the hand goes. Just the hand. Tommy Gore also worked as a state agent in treasure salvage operations off the Treasure Coast. He and Sue are retired and live in Georgia now. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Fitzgerald is best known for his novel The Great Gatsby, a depiction of excessive lifestyles in the 1920s. As Bill Dudley reports, Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda visited Florida several times. The bleak marshes were punctuated by biblical admonitions to a better life. Abandoned fishing boats disintegrated in the sun. The Don Cesar Hotel and Paso Grill stretched lazily over the stubbed wilderness, surrendering its shape to the blinding brightness of the gulf. Rollins College Fitzgerald scholar Gail Sinclair reads the words of Zelda Sayer Fitzgerald describing their stay on St. Petersburg Beach in January 1932. The couple were guests at the Don Cesar, a lavish pink stucco hotel built in the late 1920s. Fitzgerald always liked to live in the most fashionable places with the most fashionable people at the you know he wouldn't have stayed at anything but the biggest best and the Don Cesar I think is part of it you know he had a chauffeur drive him down here I mean that was Don Cesar material to show up at the door with a chauffeur. University of Maryland Professor Emeritus Jackson Breyer is president of the Fitzgerald Society and co-editor of Dear Scott Dearest Zelda a collection of the couple's love letters. By the time the Fitzgeralds came to Florida, their glory days were behind them. They'd spent most of the 1920s in Europe, often on the French Riviera, icons for the fast-living, heavy-drinking jazz age he had written about in short stories and novels, like This Side of Paradise and The Great Gatsby. But by 1932, Zelda, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, was living in her hometown, Montgomery, Alabama. Scott was in Hollywood, writing screenplays and his fourth novel, Tender as the Night. Reuniting at Christmas, they decided on a Florida vacation. She sees Florida as a place of sunshine, which is going to be healthful, hopefully. It's probably as close as they were able to find nearby to recreate that sense of the happiness, the sun and the sand, and that memory that they had of the Riviera, the good times. They would associate Florida with that sort of ambiance. But Zelda's cryptic prose reveals little as to whether their stay at the dawn was a pleasant one. We walked at night and discussed the Pythagorean theory of numbers, and we fished by day. Reading the Seven Against Thebes, we browned on a lonely beach. The hotel was almost empty, and there were so many waiters waiting to be off that we could hardly eat our meals. The thing about Zelda is she was always sort of on the edge of madness and sanity and right on the brink between the two. And I've always felt that the way her prose comes through is a reflection of that because it's just 
on the brink between being tremendously expressive and completely incomprehensible. Things apparently ended badly after only a few days in Florida when Zelda felt the beginnings of another episode of mental illness. She began drinking and suffered a breakdown on the drive back to Alabama. A few weeks later, the Fitzgeralds were on a train to Baltimore and the psychiatric clinic at Johns Hopkins. The absence of any historical information leaves scholars free to speculate that Zelda's relapse could have been brought on by arguments between the two over their respective writing careers. Scott had been struggling for years to finish Tender as the Night, while Zelda was now writing her own autobiographical novel, Save Me the Waltz. He'd been working for seven years on a novel, and in two months she ended up producing a novel and sending it to Scribner's. I mean, I would have been a little upset, too. Here's a man who has struggled, and you see it in his letters, the torture of all those years of trying to get this novel out. And she, while she's institutionalized, for the most part, puts together this this novel. And, of course, she was writing about the same material. She was writing about their marriage and about what happened in their marriage. There was always a problem with them because he felt, you know, the material was his, not hers, and that they couldn't both write about their lives together. He had the right to write about their lives, and she didn't, which, of course, is ridiculous, but that's the way he felt. But in the end, Scott supported his wife's writing efforts, just as he had done in the 1920s. He takes a bad rap sometimes for having squelched her, but ultimately, in in Save Me the Walls and in her paintings and other things, he supports her. In 1938, the couple made a brief visit to Palm Beach. The following year, Zelda took painting classes at the Ringling Museum, in Sarasota. A lifelong alcoholic, Francis Scott Fitzgerald, died of a heart attack in December 1940, aged 44. Zelda died in a fire in an institution in Asheville, North Carolina in 1948. The Don Cesar survived as a military hospital during World War II and later an office building. Narrowly escaping the Wreckers Ball, it reopened in 1973. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahum.org.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest cultural organization in the state and the only statewide historical society. Our headquarters are at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, where we have rare and out-of-print books, maps dating back to the 1500s, historic photographs, and much more. We print books through the Florida Historical Society Press, publish the Florida Historical Quarterly, and manage the historic Rossiter House Museum in O'Galley. We hold our annual meeting in May. You can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out more. Become a member of the Florida Historical Society to join in the excitement. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Please join us again next week for Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.